This EHIV review program is presented by DKB Med Radio. I think the most important task of the provider here is to validate the challenge and to help the patient think through their options with a real focus on not being too black and white about disclosure. We need to um, help patients realize this is a lifelong process and their stance can change across people, places, and time. HIV stigma, a psychologist's viewpoint. Welcome to this edition of EHIV Review. HIV stigma, it harms the mind and it hurts the body. It engenders shame and fear of being different, being the other. It creates anxiety, pessimism, and doubt. It produces a lack of self-worth that affects medication adherence and persistence and even prevents initiation of care. What can a patient do to minimize the effects of HIV stigma? And as importantly, what should that patient's healthcare provider do to minimize how HIV stigma affects that patient's health and well-being? To discuss these issues, we're joined today by Dr. David Panalone, professor of psychology from the University of Massachusetts and a clinical psychologist from the Fenway Institute, both in Boston. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and select the Volume 8, Issue 12 link. I'm Bob Buster, DKB Med Editorial Director and Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Panalone, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Our first learning objective is to describe the psychological consequences of stressors and stigma in individuals living with HIV. But before I ask you to take us to the clinic, I want to take a few moments first to ask you some overview. We might even call them baseline questions. We presented information about many of the aspects of stigma in more than a few issues of this volume's EHIV review. And we've heard in our Patient Voices companion programs how it's personally affected people living with HIV. My first question, Dr. Panalone, is about something we haven't discussed in this forum yet. I want to ask you, from your perspective as a clinical psychologist, just what is HIV stigma? You know, as many in the audience know, HIV has a unique history that um, early in the epidemic, the public health officials were conflating identity and behavior, and it became known as a gay disease early on. And so that stigma has remained, even though, of course, we know that the disease is spread by behavior, not by identity. It's HIV has kept its the negative connotations um, from then. And so HIV stigma is both attitudes, stigmatizing attitudes we think of as prejudice and stigmatizing actions. So those could be in the form of microaggressions or um, outright discrimination, and those are common even today. And there are a lot of moralistic judgments about people who acquire the virus, I think partly because of the specific behaviors that put people at risk, and those behaviors are common, yet they're stigmatized also. Psychologically, you know, our brains like to categorize things and people as good and bad, safe, harmful. And uh, this is a time when those mental shortcuts are really harmful to people. Thank you, doctor. To continue our overview perspective, 
Our learning objective focuses on the psychological consequences of people living with HIV stigma. Dr. Panalone, if you would please describe some of those consequences for us. You know, there, there are a lot, unfortunately. One of the primary consequences of HIV stigma is internalized stigma. So uh, where folks are exposed to those societal messages and those experiences so frequently that they end up believing those messages even a little and then it can grow. And that stigma is related to mental health problems that folks can develop later. But also just being a person living with HIV, it's so stressful um, and that the discrimination and the HIV stigma together can move a person in the direction of meeting full threshold criteria for a variety of mental health problems. And you can think of it like fear and shame that are so common can lead to anxiety or even anxiety disorders. And sadness and grief, also common, can lead to depression and even mood disorders. And so not all of the mental health problems that people living with HIV face are related to HIV stigma, but it's certainly a contributing factor. Understood. We've had more than one patient tell us that hearing their HIV diagnosis for the first time, and even after living with HIV for a while, it feels so stressful that it veers into the territory of being traumatic. As some have even compared it to PTSD. Your thoughts about that conceptualization, doctor? You know, PTSD, um, the traumatic events that can result in threshold level PTSD are pretty narrow. Um, and the diagnostic system that we have doesn't always do a good job of capturing um, the experiences of people where they don't quite fit those narrow expectations. But there are different uh, symptom clusters that are common in PTSD that do map well onto the experiences of people who are living with HIV. One category is avoidance. Um, that's the PTSD conceptualization, but we can see that in our in our patients as a kind of emotional detachment, that kind of overwhelmedness that leads to potentially feeling nothing. That's really everything. Um, Hyperarousal uh, cluster is about hypervigilance, and so a strong startle reflex, and um, uh, you know, could even be nightmares. Uh, th those kinds of symptoms. Intrusive thoughts and memories are another of the PTSD symptom clusters that uh, can be common for folks, as well as negative changes in thinking or mood, kind of rumination, thinking about events of the past, um, and a hopelessness towards the future. And so it might not map exactly onto PTSD, the experiences of, of people living with HIV, but it's a pretty good proxy for a lot of the experiences that people have. And I also want to ask you about relationships. HIV stigma affecting personal relationships. Have you seen that a lot in your practice? Absolutely. You know, we always say like people aren't islands. We need each other to get by in the world. And one of the consequences of HIV and HIV stigma is that it can disrupt social relationships. And that can play out in a few different ways. Um, one, for example, is a fear of the um, individual's HIV positive status being discovered by friends or potential friends. But keeping secrets in any relationship makes it challenging to have a strong emotional connection. It's understandable why a person with HIV would be reluctant to disclose. And so you, you kind of see both sides. That's like it makes sense to protect oneself, but also it can end up being a barrier in relationships. 
It can come up in other kinds of even acquaintance relationships, like in a workplace setting, for example, um, where work friends could out someone's HIV status and the consequences may be grave, like uh, losing one's job. We've heard that happen lots of times. And the same for neighbors and the potential for eviction. But both of those are illegal, of course, but sometimes they still happen and the fear of that happening can persist. And HIV stigma can play out in relationships also in terms of sex and dating partners. So, for example, the need to navigate decisions about status disclosure, so risking rejection or, or harm even, um, or non-disclosure can lead to risking self-blame or shame. Let me ask you now to talk to us from the healthcare provider's perspective. What are some of the elements of living with or coping with HIV stigma that providers could and probably should discuss with their patients? You know, a lot of people who are living with HIV have other stressors in their lives, including other devalued identities. And for example, one of the studies that my colleagues and I have worked on together um, was is a coping with discrimination intervention. And in order to make that intervention, we worked with uh, HIV positive sexual minority black men. And the study is called Still Climbing. And in our study, we talked with the men um, in a quality in qualitative work early on about what the stressors were that were that were most upsetting to them, and then how they coped with those stressors. And what we learned was really interesting about um, how the men could talk at length about all of the coping strategies that they had related to racism but how when it came to discrimination or microaggressions based on sexual orientation or based on HIV status, the men had a difficult time kind of translating those skills from one uh, stressor to the other. And so in our work, we've taken on this com concept, this psychological concept of skills generalization. So having skills that show up in one domain and being able to have people utilize them in a different domain. And so in a lot of our work, we actually haven't really had to teach folks anything because they have the skills. It's about helping them to notice in what context they could use those skills and strengthening those skills so that that um, that patients can use them even in times of high distress. And so that's something that providers could certainly do. I know a lot of folks might not feel comfortable teaching coping skills in the context of their healthcare visits, but asking questions that help patients to see that they have skills that they might be able to use that they maybe aren't using in this context that are working for them really well in another. Well, thank you, doctor, for bringing us that comprehensive overview about HIV stigma. Let's refocus now on how that information might work in the clinic. So uh, if you would, please, Dr. Panalone, take us to a patient situation. So let's picture uh, working in the clinic, a 25-year-old black gay-identified cisgender man who's living with HIV, and he uh, uh, comes in for a six-month follow-up um, at the HIV clinic where we're working. And he reports to us that he's been adjusting well to taking his medications, and he's been adjusting to thinking himself, thinking of himself as a person who's living with the virus. But he's seeking your support about a conflict that he feels internally about disclosing his HIV status in any setting or in multiple settings because of a fear of being mistreated. 
fear of disclosing his HIV status in any setting or in multiple settings. What specifics did he provide? So for this patient, he's talking about um, different settings. So for example, in his family context, with friends and colleagues, with dating and sex partners, and then acquaintances from various places. So um, work, school, neighbors, that, that kind of thing. And in the clinic, he presents to you how? I'd say that he presents with um, with a pretty common conundrum um, that we that we see related to HIV status, but even in the sexual orientation literature, where less disclosure may mean fewer chances for being discriminated against by another person, but more internalized stress. And then more disclosure that can lead to more discrimination. And so he presents kind of classically with this um, not sure where to land for different contexts on that um, on on that balance. You painted a pretty vivid picture of this patient's dilemma, doctor. How would you advise a provider to help a patient like this navigate those stresses and fears? I think it's so important to validate the dilemma overall. I think so much of what can happen when folks, especially when folks are newly diagnosed, and I'm sure lots of our listeners have had this experience, is that people may not know, um, our patients may not know anyone else who's living with HIV, and so they just feel like they're the only person who's going through this set of challenges at that time. And so I think it's so important to validate the dilemma, validate the stress that comes with the dilemma, and the need to make a determination about disclosing that comes up multiple times every day. I think sometimes um, in the literature related to sexual orientation and coming out, you know, we say coming out is a process because there's the kind of uh, acceptance for oneself. But then every new person we meet is a new opportunity uh, to make a decision about whether to come out about sexual orientation or HIV status or not, and then to live with the consequences of that decision. And so I think also providers can help our patients to frame by framing a discussion as investigating the pros and cons of disclosing to different people in different contexts at different times. And I think the timing is the element that so often we have to remind patients about. That's like, it doesn't have to be now. You know, they don't have to tell everyone all at once. Um, and they could start with a trusted person who they suspect will have a positive and supportive reaction to get practice in disclosing and trying to make sure that our patients see that this is a time in which a kind of hard and fast rule about always disclosing or never disclosing probably is going to make more stress than it relieves. And so, um, you know, my advice is be strategic, kind of dip your toes in, choose people's people times and places that are most likely to yield a positive result. And then accept that some amount of basic education of other people is likely going to be needed at some point. Um, you know, and just remember that fear comes from ignorance and that so often negative reactions that we experience from those kinds of disclosures are based on an irrational fear that comes from a lack of knowledge. A very informative discussion, doctor. Thank you. 
Let's summarize what we've been talking about in light of our learning objective. Describe the psychological consequences of stressors and stigma in individuals living with HIV. What are the most important points you'd want our learners to remember? I'd say first, HIV is a unique disease because of the way that it's transmitted through behaviors that are common yet stigmatized, and because of its unique history as initially impacting only marginalized groups. Two, I would say for many people who are living with the virus, there are intrapersonal consequences. Uh, so within themselves, like mental health symptoms and internalized stigma that are very common. Three, I would say there are also interpersonal consequences. So between people, such as the perpetual tension between disclosure uh, and the risk of harm that comes with that. And on the other side, concealment and the additional stress that comes from that. I'd say four um, coping skills that are used to manage responses to other stressors could be useful for addressing HIV stigma when it comes up in people's lives. And then finally, five, when patients disclose their HIV stigma experiences, the in-the-moment healthcare provider response is really important for developing trust and communicating validation and care. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. David Panalone from UMass Boston in just a moment. It really is a very simple question. Your CME, CEU credits, have you got all that you need? Because they're still available without charge from EHIB Review. It's the information you need to improve patient outcomes combined with how that new information can be applied to clinical practice. EHIV Review delivers with expert clinical advice and analysis, programs are accredited for nurses as well as physicians, and all programs and credits are provided without charge. Find what you need at ehivreview.org. Welcome back to our EHIV Review program. We've been speaking with Dr. David Panalone, Professor of Psychology at UMass Boston and an affiliated investigator at the Fenway Institute about the psychological consequences of stigma in individuals living with HIV. Let's turn now to our second learning objective. Discuss the challenges in developing successful stigma reduction interventions in individuals living with HIV. Uh, so if you would please, Dr. Panelone, take us to the clinic with a patient scenario. Here we have a newly diagnosed 45-year-old white transgender woman who's presenting to the clinic for the first time. She's tearful, describes feeling upset after checking in at the front desk because the clerk was rude to her. And she wonders aloud in the meeting whether the person may hold negative views about people living with HIV or about trans people or both. This is something we've heard from participants in our Patient Voices programs. Almost all of them, they've had an episode of feeling mistreated or disrespected, not by the direct provider, but by some other part of that provider's healthcare system. This is very common. You know, we hear it from a lot of patients also, and I hear it from my provider colleagues as well. So how should the provider respond? What's your advice in this situation? We can have the initial impulse either to defend our colleague or to try and investigate the circumstances of the interaction, seemingly to say to the person, no, that wasn't what happened. But 
I think that's really not the best tactic. I think, honestly, the most important thing we can do is not to disagree with or invalidate the patient. When they report to you an experience like that, it's a critical moment in your relationship and and in their healthcare journey. And so um, this is a person who goes through their life being discriminated against for one or more identities, maybe every day. And if they're showing you their vulnerability and they're implicitly asking you to respond, um, you know, you didn't see the interaction. And so you don't know what really happened, but it it almost doesn't even matter. And so if you know who the staff member is or you don't know who it is, again, it, that also doesn't really matter. I think even if the patient were to say, you know, what's your opinion? Was this discrimination or not? Really what matters is um, us thinking to ourselves, what does this patient need right now? What are they asking for implicitly by telling me about this experience? Okay. So what is it you think this patient needs? Kindness, uh, compa compassion, understanding, validation. And I think the provider should approach the interaction with curiosity. Curiosity? How so? I would be thinking to myself, why is this patient telling me this information? You know, one, they might think I'm someone who can help them to respond to a stressful and scary situation that I could coach them about a coping response. Uh, two, they might think I'm someone who might be able to change the system or the structure at the clinic to reduce the chances of an experience like that happening again to someone in the future. I think when a client makes a disclosure like this, we have an opportunity to show them the best of the healthcare profession in a response. How would you communicate that? I would say something like, first, I'm, I'm so sorry that happened and left you feeling so bad. I would say I'm here to help you as best I can. Obviously, I can't erase that experience, but I can help you have better experiences with the healthcare system. I want to make sure that you see there are lots of us who respect and celebrate you for all of your identities. And I would say, you know, to the patient, if you want, we can talk about ways that I could follow up with that person or with my colleague who oversees the staffing um, and training of staff that if they're comfortable with me following up on their report, I would want to be able to make sure to do my part to make sure it doesn't happen again. That's the opposite of who we want to be as a clinic and as a healthcare system. Understood. So what would you actually do about this front desk situation? It depends on a lot of factors, not the least of which is whether this is a pattern that I've heard about before and whether the patient expresses a comfort with me intervening on their behalf to the specific staff person they interacted with. But generally, I would want to suggest additional training for frontline staff, would want to reinforce the importance of recognizing the vulnerability of our patients as they come to the clinic for services. I think for those of us who work in HIV or who work in medical settings, it's, it, you know, it can feel like just another patient, just another check-in. But for the patient, there's there's potentially so much anxiety attached to the visit, both because of a fear of how they might be treated, but also because of worries about their health status in the first place. And um, there's uh, one of the articles in the commentary that I wrote about was this 2021 study from Nyblade et al. And it said um, that they in that article, they focused on um, in terms of training staff, focused on the fear of transmission, 
raising awareness of HIV stigma and taking a total facility approach. And so not just working um, with the frontline providers, but working with all frontline staff. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, now this patient is also transgender. How does that complicate this approach? It highlights another element that I think is important to acknowledge. You know, we know that our patients have multiple marginalized identities and experiences, and we can't all be culturally competent at dealing with all of them, although it's important to have as a goal, to have that as a goal. Um, for some of us, we might have patients frequently who are un unhoused or patients who are non-white or those who are trans or non-binary or otherwise gender diverse, we might not initially be comfortable asking about those identities or the experiences that we're not that comfortable with or not that familiar with. But that silence actually reinforces the stigma. And so our own worry about offending by using the wrong words might lead us to avoiding the whole topic of those identities. And that can inadvertently signal to a patient that we don't see them fully or that there's a part of them that we don't want to know about or even a part that they should hide or feel ashamed of. And so I think it's that I think of it like this tendency in polite conversation to not want to offend and then to just avoid the elephant in the room, if you will. But in a clinical setting, really, the onus is on us to ask about all of the important topics, even if we stumble through the language. That brings up an interesting conundrum, doctor. Most providers, and I'm speaking generally now, have trained to focus on providing physical health care as opposed to mental health care. How should providers determine how much they can help a specific patient manage HIV stigma, as opposed to the patient receiving potentially more appropriate care by referring them to a mental health provider? How do they make that decision? It's a great question, and I'm going to give you the most therapist answer ever, which is it depends. This is a joke in mental health provider training. Um, everything depends. And you know, I think if the stigma is keeping them from getting in the room with you, then I think a mental health consultation with care engagement as a primary goal is really essential. Um, for helping the patient deal with the variety of environmental and identity-based stressors in their lives, mental health consultation or case management, it's probably a good idea anyway. We're just about out of time, doctor. So one last patient situation, if you would, please. Yes, thank you. You know, what if a patient says, yeah, that's all well and good. I can certainly do that to cope with discrimination, but there's a major problem that you're not acknowledging here, you know, provider. Aren't you really blaming the victim? Like, I'm the one being discriminated against, and now I'm the one who's being assigned extra work about how to manage that discrimination. I'm already exhausted. And now I have to do even more just to get by. Wouldn't it be better if we all spent our time trying to solve the problem of reducing HIV stigma in society instead? That's a very interesting patient insight. What are your thoughts about that premise? I totally agree with this patient, and I wish I was insightful enough to make that observation first, but um, I note it only because it came up in, in, in our work. And I think it's absolutely valid that a focus only on individual level responses to HIV stigma, only relying on the interpersonal interaction can can be seen in a way as blaming the victim. And 
you know, none of us who do this work really think that the problem lies in the person living with HIV. We're not trying to say the problem is their failure to cope. The problem is the discriminatory experiences that they have. Um, and the premise that we should be helping people to manage HIV stigma, you know, it is incomplete. And we all have a role in reducing HIV stigma at the structural level and finding ways to make it easier for people living with the virus to work and love in the world without being encumbered by HIV stigma. I think that's a great point to end our discussion on, Doctor, because you've really laid out how HIV stigma affects not only the patient, but also the provider. I think you've covered all the most important aspects. So I want to thank you for a great discussion and for sharing your expertise and insights on this topic. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing this part of our conversation as it relates to our learning objective, discuss the challenges in developing successful stigma reduction interventions in individuals living with HIV. We've covered a lot of ground here. What are the key things you'd want our learners to take back to the clinic? I'd say first, it's not fair that people living with HIV have to experience HIV stigma and then they are called on to modify their behavior to manage it. Two, I would say it's important to acknowledge and try to understand the unique experiences of our patients who have additional stigmatized identities other than um, being HIV positive. Three, I would say People living with HIV, and especially those with additional stigmatized identities, they face the same stressors that everyone faces, plus layers of identity-based stressors. Um, for, for providers and patients alike, it's essential to remember that both the problem of HIV stigma and the skills and strategies that someone might use to manage it function on both that individual and the structural levels. And finally, fifth, I would say providers' responses should be guided by the goals of curiosity, validation, and problem-solving if that's what's needed. From the Department of Psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the Fenway Institute, Dr. David Pantalona, thank you for joining us in today's eHIV Review Program. Thank you for inviting me. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Merkin Company, and Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHAV Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med LLC. Thank you for listening.